You're listening to the Child Safeguarding Podcast by Pointing Consulting and Advisory. Welcome back to another episode of the Child Safeguarding Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Pointing from PCA, and my guest today is Harriet Witchell. Harriet is the founder and CEO of MyCluto, and Harriet has conducted investigations and worked with and trained investigators across Australia for over 20 years. Thank you for being here, Harriet. It's a pleasure. It's lovely to meet you and have this opportunity. Thanks, Brad. Not a problem. So this episode is probably going to be just a little bit different to most. Um, In most episodes, the guest and I, we bang on and we agree with each other about how important it is for organisations to have a proactive and preventative approach to protecting the well-being and welfare of children and young people. And while that's definitely, definitely true, um, child safe organisation also um, needs to be implementing cultures and structures which enable it to recognize and respond to incidents and allegations of harm to children as well. And Harriet, the work that you do supports organizations to be able to react and respond to allegations and incidents. So could you tell us about a bit about yourself and a bit about your background? Sure. So as you said, you know, I've been in the investigations industry for a little over 20 years, but I've been involved in um, child abuse and child protection pretty much since I left school. So I started my my first job was working in a children's home back in the 80s in the United Kingdom. From there, I went on to become a police officer. Um, And then I moved to Australia uh, to work for Charles Sturt University, just at the back end of the Woodrow Commission into police corruption. And some of your listeners may be aware that the um, final stage of that Royal Commission actually looked at the protection of pedophiles within the police service and was the motivator for the introduction of the reportable conduct scheme into New South Wales in 2001. Um, so I was working at the university at that time and uh, did various things with them, including writing courses on investigating child abuse. Um, Also conducted a lot of research on the interviewing of children and people with disabilities. And since then, I um, established a workplace investigations company. So in 2001, I left the university and started working as a consultant doing investigations and built up a company and ran that for like 17 years. And during that time would have conducted thousands of investigations into reportable conduct and historical um, abuse. And um, since uh, selling that business, you know, I've been doing various things, still working in the industry. And then in 2020, I launched my Cluedo, which is a marketplace for independent investigators. Um, to provide all sorts of different kinds of investigations and risk services to um, clients, which include services in the safeguarding. So we've got a number of people with safeguarding expertise, investigators who specialise in investigating reportable conduct incidents. Oh, wow. Awesome. Yeah. That's that's quite a lot. Uh, <laughs> and uh, an interesting point there that uh, in the training that I deliver, I talk about reportable conduct schemes a bit. And I usually say when I'm talking about particularly New South Wales that it's been in place for around about 20 years. I didn't realise that this year is the 20th year. <laughs> so that's good yes. to have in my back pocket there. Wow. Yeah. And um, in that in that journey as well, it was good to be involved with Victoria when they introduced their scheme just a few years ago. Um, we helped write a graduate certificate in government investigations that's specifically tailored towards investigating child protection um, complaints and abuse in care. Um, 
and of course the New South Wales scheme has changed substantially, I, I feel, substantially in the last couple of years um, to reflect the more national um, approach to reportable conduct. And obviously, uh, in our chat today, we're going to talk about uh, your work with a focus on, on children and young people in particular. But does your investigating experience cover other matters like uh, interstaff issues, fraud matters and things like that? Or has it always been focused on, on children and young people? No, look, personally, I have quite a broad range of investigative experience. Um, I do prefer to work within the um, either with the reportable conduct areas or with bullying and harassment and discrimination. That sort of um, work seems to be my personal forte. But on the platform, we have investigators with a full range of um, skills. So that includes cyber threats, digital forensics, surveillance and a whole range of investigators. We thought today that we might focus the chat that we're going to have on investigations into child harm within that specific context of needing to comply with a reportable conduct scheme. Um, so I thought uh, well, at the time of recording, so New South Wales, ACT and Victoria currently have a reportable conduct scheme. And as we've just sort of alluded to there, New South Wales is the longest standing for 20 years, we've just found out. Um, <laughs> but for anyone that may not be familiar, can you can you tell us briefly what that reportable conduct scheme actually is and what organisations typically fall into that sort of those sort of schemes? Yeah. So the main aim of a reportable conduct scheme is to ensure that employers investigate complaints of abuse and that individuals who are found to have committed reportable conduct are banned from working with children. So a reportable conduct scheme works hand in hand with a working with children check, which is required for individuals who work with children. And at different states also have similar schemes to protect vulnerable adults and people working with disabilities. But we'll just stick to the schemes, the main mm -hmm. schemes that focus on protecting children. Yeah. Um, I think it's important to identify that each scheme is state based and there mm -hmm. are slight differences between the schemes that exist currently, mostly in relation to the definitions of the behavior that is considered to be reportable. Um, so the. A scheme dictates that individuals who work with or volunteer with children in specific industries such as education, childcare, they now include sporting clubs and religious um, organisations, um, those staff must not engage in specific behaviours which are defined as reportable conduct. So and if an employee or a volunteer is found to have engaged in those behaviours, they will then be reported to the agency administering the scheme and uh, can have their working with children check removed. So they, the schemes create some three main um, legal obligations. Mm -hmm. The first one is that the when an allegation of reportable conduct is received, the agency must report it. The second one is they must investigate it mm -hmm. and then they have to report on the findings to that independent agency. So those are the main three obligations that they have. And in terms of the sorts of behaviours, so they have changed in New South Wales recently, um, following on from the introduction of the scheme in Victoria. But the sorts of behaviours that are defined as reportable conduct are any sorts of assaults, physical abuse, psychological abuse, grooming and sexual misconduct is a large area. Um, and the schemes provide an additional protection for children. That's that's really their main benefit mm -hmm. is they over and above the criminal justice system, 
employers are able to uh, make determinations based on the balance of um, probabilities rather than the higher threshold of beyond reasonable doubt, which is the standard for a criminal case. There's quite a few different things to sort of um, to pick <laughs> apart on there. There's a lot for organisations to make sure they're across when they when they mm. fall into the scheme. Um, one of the important things is that you've mentioned is that it's allegations based. So for mm. for whatever reason, the organisation might know or, or believe or have very strong evidence to suggest that the allegation is untrue at the time the allegation is made, but that's mm. not relevant. It, it's an allegations-based scheme. It still must be reported um, through to the, to the, the oversight body. Um, and um, one of the other elements there is that typically... Uh, it's a very senior part of the organisation that needs to be providing that information across to the oversight body as well. It's the responsibility, really, the ultimate responsibility for that action happening sits with the head of agency. Yeah, so it, it ensures that very senior levels of the organisation know about these serious allegations mm-hmm. uh, and that they're across them and they're across the investigation. They know what's actually gone on to, to investigate um, the allegations and the circumstance because they're the ones that actually have to provide that information across to the oversight body. Obviously, as organisations um, grow in maturity with their approach to safeguarding, you would hope to see less reportable incidents. But at the... Um frequency of reportable incidents is very much associated with the line of work or mm. activities that agencies are involved in. So the mo- by far the most um, or the largest number of complaints come from out-of-home care providers. Yeah. And that's not because the out-of-home care providers are doing a bad job. It's because it's uh, the, the out-of-home care providers, so foster carers um, and um respite carers are working in um, difficult environments with challenging children Mm -hmm. and the frequency of complaints or incidents that border on uh, reportable conduct are just much higher. Yeah, yeah, very true. And then as well as as the same sort of thing, as you're maturing, the organisation is also then actually better able to recognise behaviour, which is potentially reportable conduct as well. Uh, which yeah. is then actually going to increase numbers of uh, of reportable <laughs> conduct matters, um, not because the frequency has actually changed, just because the organisation's better actually better able to find those those incidents when they are occurring. Mm-hmm. It's probably worth mentioning at this point that we do expect that more states and territories will be implementing reportable conduct schemes uh, down the line. Uh, so Queensland has recently wrapped up a, a community consultation. Uh, looking at how they might introduce a reportable conduct scheme and also how they might legislate compliance with the uh, the National Principles for Child Safe Organisations or the Child Safe Standards. Uh, so that's a pretty clear indicator that Queensland Government is making positive moves in this space. And I'm very confident that every state and territory around Australia um, did either accept or accept in principle the recommendation from the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse to be implementing a reportable conduct scheme. So they've all given that indication that they will be doing this in some sort of way. Uh, So, yeah, I think it's probably just a matter of time before they they start popping up in other states and territories, Uh, which is why I thought it'd be a good idea to to have you on here today to talk about that. So particularly those other states that maybe aren't quite so familiar uh, might be able to have a look at their complaints process and their investigations process and those sorts of things and start to think about, you know, if, if that was announced, 
would we actually be able to comply with a reportable conduct scheme or, or do we have a lot of improvements that we need to make? And maybe we need to start making them now rather than waiting for that announcement as well. As <laughs> um, so I think off the top of my head, I think ACT moved very quickly from announcement to implementation. I, I think it really depends on what infrastructure people have in place already. It mm. was interesting working with Victoria because their Department of Health and Human Services really has a monopoly on all of the services that that would come under a reportable conduct scheme. Mm -hmm. So in some ways that was helpful and some ways that was unhelpful because it was such a large organization with so many um, different elements to coordinate. It would have taken a long time to come up with a uniform system that it could implement. On the other hand, it had a lot of control over implementing the system. So it only had to come up with one system rather than coordinating multiple systems. Yeah. Okay. Obviously, not everybody comes under the Department of Health and Human Services. You have education as well. Um, and with the sporting associations, that's a new one uh, that there may be less uh, less able to respond in the way that's expected of other more bureaucratic organizations, should we say? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so what do you, what do you think, uh, what would you say are the most common problems that organizations encounter when they are undertaking an investigation involving reportable conduct? Well, it's interesting because you touched on this point before and probably the first the most common problem is the failure to recognize that an issue is reportable conduct mm -hmm. or having a preconceived bias about the outcome of that issue that's been reported. Yeah. And what that tends to do is that the people receiving the complaint dismiss it as not, not a complaint or they dismiss it as unfounded without investigating it properly and certainly without reporting it. So it, it's the, the natural bias in us as humans works against us reporting it because we feel that reporting a, uh, an allegation somehow indicates that it's truthful and it's a, you know, if directed at a person that the person is guilty. Mm -hmm. uh, but that is absolutely incorrect. An allegation yeah. is, a, is an allegation and it's not substantiated until after the investigation is completed and all the evidence has been looked at. So that is a mental block for many um, people in the in relevant industries. And so I think that is a difficult one for people to overcome. Um, one of the other big issues, of course, is information sharing. So mm -hmm. that is a challenge to all of the reportable conduct schemes. And in fact, they have had to introduce in each state, they've had to introduce special legislation to enable the sharing of information because our privacy legislation is very eff effective, which is mm -hmm. great. Um, <laughs> but that can, in instances where you're trying to protect children, can actually work against the effective investigation or handling of those complaints. So each state has had to bring in um, guidelines and legislation to facilitate information sharing. And I believe in Victoria, their guidelines have only recently been produced. So that's this year, 2001, and yet they had their scheme in place in 2017. Yeah. So that's a long period of time where information is not really flowing between yeah. organisations. Um, 
can I just give an example of why that information sharing is so important? Absolutely, yes. So, um, and I'm going to speak about grooming, um, grooming as a, as a, as a behaviour. Mm-hmm. Um, so, grooming of um, children includes a whole range of behaviours um, where a person may you be using those behaviours with the intent of developing a sexual relationship with a, a child. <clears throat> and in order to protect children, you want to be able to identify the grooming behaviour before there is any sexual offences that actually occur. But by its very nature, it's quite difficult to intervene and it's quite difficult to prove that there's any intent if no sexual offence has actually occurred yet. But obviously that's what we're trying to do. So we, I do recall one particular case where um, a complaint had been received by a parent of a six-year-old uh, about a volunteer bus driver that would drive the kids to school. And the parent complained that the bus driver had given their child a gift. And so it was a reportable conduct incident because it occurred in New South Wales and it was investigated. And there wasn't really sufficient information in relation to that child to make a finding of um, sexual misconduct in that instance. However, um, because we were able to share the information with his previous employers and also with police, the police um, were then able to reach out to a a different child who had um, made a report to them some years earlier about this gentleman's behaviour. And they were able, the police were actually able to put all the pieces of information together and successfully prosecute the, the bus driver for grooming and sexual offences against the, the, the other child. So whilst we weren't able to, um, we weren't able to take any action with regarding to the complaint that came to the agency, it did mean that enough information was brought to light so that that perpetrator was removed. Um, I'm not sure whether they did um, prison time, but they certainly wouldn't be allowed to work with children again. So that's how that system really kicks in to protect children. Wow, that's a really, really pointed example. Thank you so much. I think that, yeah, really helps to articulate the point um, or part of that sort of wider point of reportable conduct schemes, which has always been... Um, part of the intention, particularly with New South Wales, in in developing that as well. So there was another um, point as well, actually, Brad. So there were three points I identified with that that question you asked. And the the third one that creates a challenge for agencies when they're responding is the delay that is involved in investigations when police are involved. Yeah. So many matters of reportable conduct... um, fall into police um, territory, a jurisdiction, if you like. Um, But of course, not all are reported. So whilst an agency, uh, many agencies do now have a protocol where they will report, if it's a criminal offence, they will report it to police. The police are not able to proceed with an investigation or a prosecution unless the victim wants that as a course of action. And there are many reasons why um, children in particular and parents of children don't want a case to be pursued through a criminal prosecution. So this inevitably causes delays for employers when they're investigating. And one of the points that I wanted to get across today is that um, it's vital that employers don't damage the evidence Mm -hmm. 
when they're pursuing an investigation and for that reason we give police the first opportunity so certainly when we're talking to vulnerable if we're looking at vulnerable evidence such as memory from children um, and other uh, physical evidence that needs special preservation we want to give the police the first opportunity to gather that evidence but it's not always necessary to completely stop an investigation because sometimes police can be quite slow um, to respond um, because of their own priorities. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot that agencies can do to gather information and to get staff to write incident reports, collate any written documents. You can take photographs of scenes, um, even injuries with the right permission where it doesn't damage the evidence actually you're just collecting it all together and the police will be grateful that you've done that quickly rather than maybe waited three or four months for the police to then turn around and say actually we're not we're not pursuing an investigation yeah. and then the agencies are very much on the back foot with providing an effective investigation yeah that's a really good point and, and even if it hasn't become a police matter as well you can have similar delays around um staff being on being unavailable being on on leave personal leave and things like that which can also delay um, the capacity to to complete those investigations too mm. um and it's also worth pointing out that the uh reportable conduct schemes have time frames that they expect you to comply <laughs> with uh and if you're not able to then, then you just need to provide information as to why and, and you know those things we've mentioned are reasonable reasons as to why you are not able to comply <laughs> with those but yeah it does um create more more work in letting uh the the oversight bodies know what what the uh, the hold up is and what that issue is as mm. well so you mentioned that around collecting some of that vulnerable um evidence in particular and mm. talking around um interviewing children and that sort of thing so um some of the the reportable conduct schemes do require children to be interviewed as mm -hmm. part of that process um and uh, i guess um yeah, maybe, maybe this question's a little bit pointed, but but uh, I am wondering how do you how do you feel about interviewing children as part of that investigation, um, in in schemes where that is required? Well, obviously, as a critical part of a complaint, children's evidence is really important. Mm -hmm. So we need to give people a voice, and we need to give children a voice in the process. Um, but obviously, there there comes. Uh, that comes with risks and a risk of harm, risk of re-traumatization and a risk of um, indelibly damaging the evidence that they that they have in their heads. Mm -hmm. So I think it is something that needs to be treated very carefully. And my personal view, when we're dealing with reportable conduct, often the way the disclosure happens, there's quite a lot of interviewing that happens before it ever reaches the point of being reported. So the probably the the most risky time for that evidence uh, comes from the questions that are asked of a child by their parents, mm -hmm. by teachers, by care care workers, when they initially make a complaint. So those questions are typically quite closed and quite pointed, mm -hmm. um, and made by people who are not experienced in gathering forensic evidence. So that's like a critical incident um, in terms of gathering evidence. So I feel that when we come in as investigators for reportable conduct, 
we need to be able to accurately record what questions have been asked and what words were actually spoken. Now, the younger a child is, the more critical that becomes, mm -hmm. because if you're trying to interpret the answers of a four-year-old, what questions and answers were given is is absolutely critical. If if the child is 14, it's less critical. Uh, but of course, if you add disabilities into that or yeah. uh, any other kind of um, vulnerability, the the way the psychology works, we really need to understand that. So um, I know in interviewing um, psychologists now in England, look at preparing a contamination timeline. So this is a, a timeline of how a witness's evidence may have been contaminated from the mm -hmm. point of disclosure through to um, a courtroom. So that that's used in policing, you know, in criminal investigations, but it's also valid for reportable conduct investigations. So often a, a child will be interviewed when they first disclose. Then the matter's reported if it's serious, then the police may conduct one or two interviews sometimes three and then after the police have finished somebody like myself will come in and do another investigation personally we need to really question whether that is necessary yeah you know if you're getting to three or four interviews with a child it's very dependent on age depending on the level of trauma experience from the event um, but we can often find evidence in other places to evaluate what the child has said. We don't necessarily need to hear it firsthand again. Mm -hmm. So I think for for agencies working with reportable conduct, they really need to think about, do they have to interview the child? Is it relevant? Will they get new relevant evidence? And what are the skills of the person that they're using? So they really need to have experienced, trained forensic interviewers to gather that evidence from children. Um, it's not really adequate just to be someone who works a lot with children. So I've seen, you know, teachers talk to children all day long. Mm -hmm. Caseworkers deal with children all the time. But they're not experts in gathering forensic evidence and asking non-leading questions. And those yeah. are some of the key elements. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and that sort of leads into the next question I was going to ask, which is what should organisations do if they if they don't feel confident to interview the child? If they don't feel confident to interview the child, they need to be looking at appointing an external person that has the right skill base to do that task. Mm -hmm. And somebody with the right experience will be able to look at the case and determine uh, safely whether the child needs to be interviewed. Obviously, if there's regulations that say they must be interviewed, that's one thing. But it may be that the um, an experienced person will be able to say whether that needs to take place and weigh up the risks and benefits for that child. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to seamlessly segue into a bit of a, a plug here for, for you. But, but if organisations do not have that internal capacity to be able to undertake investigations or, or maybe they make a decision on a case by case basis about whether to handle it internally or not. Um, I believe that, that uh, Mike Ludo, that you founded that online platform to find independent investigators. Um, so can you can you tell us in a bit more detail about what Mike Ludo is and, and how that might actually be, be useful to organisations. 
Yeah. So my Cluedo is a, um, it's a, essentially it's a marketplace with pre-vetted and qualified investigators. It provides investigators across a whole range of services. But if you were to look at safeguarding or investigating reportable conduct, as an example, um, the investigators are vetted for their experience and training qualifications in those particular areas. So clients can Clients who are requiring investigators um, can come to the platform, they can make a request for a particular skill base in a particular location, and then we help them find and narrow down the choice of suitable investigators. So they can obtain um, independent quotes for comparison purposes. Mm -hmm. Um, if they're in a you know area where they've got lots of potential providers, and they get to select the one that most suits their particular case. So and, yeah, and is that can they do that sort of I guess um, uh, proactively so that before there is actually something to investigate, um, so that they actually know that if if they ever did need to call on this service, they'd, they'd automatically know who to go to, or is it more of a um, as you need it. As, as incidents occur is when you use that service? Well, it's a bit of both actually, because we've been working with a number of different clients. And so when we work with a client, so that might be a care provider, a not-for-profit agency, um, they have the relationship with us. So when they, um, and they understand that we're, where we have the, the resources such, but the platform is growing all the time. So mm -hmm. it changes and grows. And so we have more resources available this week than we did you know, this time last year, for sure. Yeah. Um, but the the clients, because often the work is very confidential as well. So whilst it's an online platform, particularly in this space, you know, we're always on the phone. So if a client needs something, talk to us first. We kind of refine what's required in terms of the skill set. And then we look for the right people and put a number of those people in front of the client for them to choose. So it's good to have that relationship set up before there's a crisis because often um, when people get a complaint in, particularly if they're not, if they don't have well-developed systems, it can be quite stressful. So they want to find somebody quickly. Um, one of the perceived downsides of using an external investigator is that it slows the investigation process down because it takes time to find someone so we can have we can have a set of quotes to somebody within 24 hours and they can have um, engaged that person within 24 hours from their first request okay yeah that's really good and that that's really sort of what i was thinking about there as well is that when there are very serious complaints being made that's a very high stress situation uh, particularly for organizations that, that maybe recognize that, that they don't have that internal skill and capacity to then quickly need to to find someone and, and um, be confident that the person they've sourced is, is actually going to meet their needs as well mm. um, those are difficult processes to go through during sort of those periods of increase increased stress for them as well yeah so, that, so that's good to know that um Outsourcing investigations sounds like it might be expensive, um, but is is it? <laughs> well, obviously, I'm a bit biased because I've been in the external investigation sure. business for a long time. <laughs> so I'll, I'll preface my response with that. But I think the first thing that agencies have to accept is they have to acknowledge that they need a budget to mm -hmm. investigate reports. Mm -hmm. Once you recognize that you need a budget, then it's about how do you get the most bang for your buck 
from that budget. Now, in terms of um, external investigators, my belief is that they really are the most cost-effective approach to provide the greatest benefit in terms of the quality outcome and therefore the protection and um, treatment of your staff. Because obviously, you know, there are um, erroneous complaints made as well. Yeah. And the welfare of the staff that are subject to those complaints is very, very important. So poorly implemented reportable conduct schemes um, can result in lots of staff dissatisfaction and people leaving an industry or an employer. So mm -hmm. you don't want that outcome. But what I would say is external investigators are always working to their peak performance because they're only as good as the last job that they do. And so they will be working absolutely focused, efficient, and they're normally highly skilled at what they do. Uh, the agencies are not paying for sick leave. They're not paying for um, water cooler chats. They don't often have to pay for travel um, or training and ongoing performance or anything like that. So you expect to get, you know, 100% delivery from every minute that somebody charges you for an investigation. Yeah. Some of the other um, benefits if you use um, external investigators, they work in multiple employment environments. So mm -hmm. they've been to 100 different workplaces and that can give them an insight into what's happening in your particular case above and beyond what an internal employee might be able to provide you. Um, so sometimes you can get a bit of complacency comes in with internal investigators because they're familiar with the culture, they're familiar with the home and they make... Um, allowances for that in their investigations whereas an external person has you know 20 different um, care homes to compare yours with and that's what they will do and so you will get a much more honest benchmarked position mm. really from that investigator and the final thing is really about um, the benefit that you get from being able to choose your investigator. Mm -hmm. So if you have a, an internal team, your greatest risk is the um, capability of those internal staff. So if you've got an internal team of investigators that's maybe two or three people, they're not necessarily going to have the right level of skill for every case that comes through into their department. Yeah. So if you use an, a bank of external people, you can pick and choose. So you can, if you've got a very complex matter with a highly, um, highly risk environment, you can pick somebody that has the skills and you're just paying, you might be paying top dollar, but mm. you're only paying it for the time of that investigation. Yeah. If your other investigations are more straightforward and simple, then you don't need to pay the same rate to get the same level of expertise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've reminded me there that in a previous role, uh, working, you know, in a child protection role, I was also doing the investigations into the allegations of, of child harm by, by staff and volunteers with the organization. Mm -hmm. And it, it just, it never sat well with me that it was my job to, to, to teach and train these staff on how to keep children safe. And if they had child protection problems, if they had concerns, if they had worries, they could call me and talk to me about those things and I would help them through that and coach them through that. But then also mm. occasionally I might turn up and be leading an investigation into an allegation about a conduct issue that they had. Uh, and mm. those two hats don't really <laughs> fit. Um, that that person, they're, they're not going to call me again when they've got a concern, when they need help with something because they're worried that 
I'm not going to hear their issue. Yeah. I'm going to hear an allegation or something and, and um, approach them in a punitive way, which investigations should not be. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was it it, it, it didn't, didn't work effectively for me. I don't mm. think it never sort of sat comfortably. And um, I assume probably didn't didn't work for the staff that were meant to be using my services either. <laughs> um, which again yeah. can be one of those sort of issues with having that internal investigator if it's just um, rather than having sort of dedicated a dedicated team of internal investigators if the organization's not big enough to have that. Yeah. If it is just when we need one, well we'll pick someone from our internal staff who's sort of related, has the most sort of skills in that area and they can do that investigation maybe with the HR team or something like that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it doesn't get the best outcomes, I don't think. No, and a lot of organisations use uh, that manager level to mm-hmm. investigate complaints and they um, they might cross over different regions. So they use a, a manager from one region to investigate the investigations in another region. Mm-hmm. But again, you do tend to come across problems because the manager's primary role in life is to train and support and educate staff so you will find uh, you know if you have to review an investigation sometimes you'll find you're reading the transcript and um, they might have asked the question you know like what time did you did you last feed um, the child for example if they were in a disabled home and um, they give a response and it's obviously not um, procedure mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the manager will go well why didn't you do it at the time it says here that's what you spoke and they go into a manager's speak yeah. <laughs> <laughs> around trying to fix and educate the problem rather than a purely investigative role yeah. so that that's a very regular problem that you find when you're reviewing internal investigations yeah definitely um, I'm just looking to time it is uh, getting to us needing to start to turn to close out um, but I could I could definitely talk about this for much, much longer. <laughs> so as we do close out, I end the podcast by asking every guest the same two questions. And as the podcast continues, I'm, I'm starting to build up quite a lot of advice and information, which um, listeners are, are letting me know actually now that they're finding quite useful. So the first question there is, uh, if you could share one piece of advice or knowledge uh, for organizations which are only just beginning their child safe organizations journey, what would it be? <laughs> Well, I had to think about this one. The My advice would be when you receive a complaint, keep calm, mm-hmm. follow your process, and don't try to rush it. Mm-hmm. So rushing investigations is usually very unhelpful in the end. So if a, an investigator needs to take their time and they need to speak to more people, you, you need to let them and have confidence that the process will come to the right conclusion in the end. And what about parents and carers? Uh, what do you think is important for parents and carers to know about um, keeping children safe in organisations and institutions? I think for parents and carers... What I would like them to understand is about grooming Mm -hmm. and to understand that grooming a child doesn't occur in a void. And most perpetrators uh, will engage in befriending and grooming adult carers in addition to the increased attention to the child. That's because when they've groomed the adults effectively, they Mm -hmm. gain free access to the child Mm -hmm. and their actions are never questioned. Yeah. And of course, if a child raises an issue, the parents will dismiss or parents or carers 
often dismiss it out of hand because they can't believe that this person who's a part of their family or is a very trusted member of the clergy or whatever it is, mm -hmm. they can't believe that they would be doing anything to harm their child. Yeah. So whenever I've had to deal with um, grooming cases and sexual assault, sexual misconduct, there's always an element where the adult, the, the perpetrator has ingratiated themselves with the adults around the child so that they have that free access. Yeah. So my advice is really stay vigilant and listen to your children. Awesome. Thank you. Two really good pieces there. Thank you so much. Um, Harry, if people want to learn more about you or get in contact, uh, how can they do that? Well, probably the best way is um, for myself personally via LinkedIn. Yep. Um, shouldn't be too hard to find uh, my profile on LinkedIn under <laughs> yep. Harriet Witchell. I'll put the um, details and... in the um, podcast notes as well. And if they're interested in looking at the services that MyCludo offers, um, the website is um, MyCludo, which is M-Y-K-L-U-D-O dot com. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And again, oh, yeah, I'll put the, both those things in the, um, the podcast notes as well. Well, thank you very much uh, for being my guest today, Harriet Witchell. Harriet is the founder and CEO of MyCludo, and we will see you next time on the Child Safeguarding Podcast. So uh, if you've enjoyed uh, the podcast, please don't forget to rate it five stars and leave a review and tell your friends and contacts about it because it does make a big difference and it helps more people find it. And to say thank you for subscribing and listening to the podcast, PCA has created a discount code for 10% off products sold directly through PCA's website. Just enter CSPOD10, that's CSPOD10 at the checkout. Um, and thank you very much for joining me on the Child Safeguarding Podcast. I'm Brad Pointing, Principal Consultant for Pointing Consulting and Advisory. And you can connect with me on LinkedIn by searching Bradley Pointing, follow PCA on Twitter, and check podcast notes for spelling of all those things. And we'll catch you next time on the Child Safeguarding Podcast.